Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Boundless Podcast. I'm Paul Millard, and I created this podcast because I'm passionate about making sense of the future of work and having conversations with the innovators, creators, and thought leaders who are carving their path in today's fast-changing world. You can check out the podcast and more on BoundlessPod.com. So this episode is with Ama Marfo, who, in addition to dropping a ton of knowledge, cracked me up several times. We talk about creativity, introversion, and humor, and how those have really evolved as interest for her in both her work and her life. And I think you'll learn a lot from her. Thank you for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate all the support, and this is work I am having so much fun with. I love telling the stories of people like Ama and others and want to continue to do it. If you want to support me, definitely just check it out on boundlesspod.com. Appreciate all the support. Check it out on iTunes. Leave a review. Share it with a friend. And if you want to support more, feel free to check it out on Patreon. Appreciate it and uh, enjoy today's episode. Ama. I'm excited to talk to you today. So I love how you describe yourself. You talk about humor, creativity, energy. But also, I saw a video where you talked about your passion for writing as well. And you talk about starting with a six-word story. So I wanted to kick that question back to you as a place to start and say, what is your six-word story? That's a tough opener. I haven't. I don't know that I've had to answer that question in a while, but I think that the best way I would answer that now, when you think about all the different ways that I work with people through writing, through speaking, through consulting and facilitating all of those things, I think I would say helping others grow any way needed. Six words. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> I'm used to having I'm used to having to hit word limits, so it comes fairly naturally at this point. Yeah, so so let's dig into that writing. It uh it appears to have played a pretty big role in yourself. When did you first start writing? So there are a couple different answers to that. I know it started super early. Uh, my parents moved, did a big move overseas a couple years ago, and my mom sent me a picture of a story I wrote when I was probably about four or five. So it wasn't in my handwriting, but I dictated the story to somebody about my family, about my sister. And I remember there was also an about the author piece, which 
Someone Ooh, thought it was like a good it. idea to ask four and five year olds what they thought about themselves and what the important things were. And I claimed to have written The Giving Tree, which we all know was <laughs> written by Shel Silverstein. But in my About the Author, I said I wrote it, um, which that's a bold move even now, let alone at four to say, nope, that was me. But I think that idea of wanting to tell stories and document the things going on around me started as early as that, I guess. And the freelance writing came in a little bit later when I moved to Boston uh, for a full time job, but also was realizing Boston's an expensive city. I should be doing other things. Right. And the nature of that job wasn't such that I could also do a part time job, but I was writing already and I had a blog for several years and was wondering if some of the writing I was doing could be things that were paid. So I started looking into those types of opportunities. And then as I was writing other things, people started to find me. So that kind of snowballed on its own. So that, that I would say has probably been happening for six or seven years. Yeah. Wh- what are some of the unexpected things that have come out of your writing, either connections you've made or opportunities that it's led to? So one of my favorite ones was... I've always been a fan of Drink History, which is now on Comedy Central, but prior to that was a web series, and I've followed it really from the beginning. And I wrote a story about how Drunk History was a really good place for women on television because they have female narrators that get to tell historical stories. They're seen as authorities on the topic that they're talking about they get to prominently feature stories of other women and it's not a whole lot of thing where they get to go forward and share their story and then people are contradicting them it's taken as fact in a way that women aren't also aren't always given the opportunity in other ways and an editor from talking points memo uh got in touch with me and said we found this story i still don't know how they found it But they got in touch and said, we're looking to restart a culture section. Would you be interested in writing things like this for us? And I said, absolutely, because that was one of my favorite random things at the time to write about. But there wasn't really a quote unquote place for it. And that was one of the first times that somebody sought me out and said, this could have a home where we write. So that was a really kind of formative piece of it. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So I I often talk to a lot of people who are trying to find their path. And one of the first pieces of advice I give them is just start writing, start writing about anything. It will help you make sense of things, help you connect with other people that share your ideas. Uh, I know you work with a lot of college students. Do you often try to get people to start writing or how do you encourage others to uh, get started? Writing is definitely part of that. I agree with you. It's a really good mechanism by which to find out about yourself, uh, what you think is important, how you respond to things, how you feel about certain things. Sometimes I'll know something doesn't feel right when I'm writing in response to something. I don't really know why until I've been writing for a little bit and that opinion or that feeling starts to make itself a little bit clearer. So being able to do that on a fairly regular basis helps you form your own opinions which I think is really important before you even start writing with the purpose of sharing with anybody or influencing thought, figuring out what you think first. And I think it's a really valuable tool for that. Yeah. So uh, we touched on it at the beginning, but I think one of the things you said you do when you start writing is look for that six word story. Talk to me about how people might think about using that and how it will help them uh, refine what they're thinking. I think it's a good refinement tool because a lot of times we get trapped in trying to explain things in a lot of words. And I fall into that trap all the time. 
I consider myself to be a fairly academic person. My dad was an academic, so he's also very wordy. And sometimes it makes things more complicated than they should be. But if you can boil down whatever your argument's going to be or whatever you're thinking on a topic, maybe it doesn't even have to be six words. Maybe it's just a sentence. That's a good kind of starting point to then, as you're putting everything else together, figuring out does it serve or does it honor that one sentence or that six words or does it not? And it helps you figure out how to tighten arguments, how to make them more concise, how to make them easier to read, because I think things being shorter versus longer is better given the types of audiences we're working with. So recognizing that you kind of need to find your point and keep reinforcing that point makes a difference. Yeah, it definitely resonates. I uh, I tend to write very lengthy and assume everybody wants to read re- really long pieces. Uh, but- mm-hmm. Um, you also need to balance it with like shorter, more uh, synthesized uh, takeaways. Yeah, and Twitter made me good at that in an odd way. <laughs> like I'm a person that likes to write a lot, but also really enjoys Twitter for the ability to force you to keep things short. I think it's a good skill. Whether you tweet or not, being able to express a thought concisely, it made me very good at that. It's that force structure that almost forces you to be a little more creative. So what do you think about the uh, shift from 140 to 280 characters? Is it making it easier? Well, I was one of the people that fought against that. And I think it was one of those things where I I remember prior to the 140 to 280 switch, there was a very brief rumor, and I'm not even sure how substantial it was, that they were going to go from 140 to something massive like 10,000 or whatever. And I was wholly against that because (laughs) anything that you now see in a thread someone puts in one tweet you're supposed to read the whole thing absolutely not right um but i think it's been i I mean i think like any kind of platform change it has its good parts and its bad parts so if you have something substantive to say 280 is fine if you are trolling people are being rude 280 is too many but 140 (laughs) would have been also so it's all about how you use it really yeah, so so I'd love to dig into some of your writing. One of the pieces that I really liked was a piece you wrote on introversion. And like you, I think Susan Cain's book, Quiet, had a really big impact on me. It kind of opened my mind to rethink what introversion and extroversion is really about. And a lot of people, I think, don't really understand what that breakdown is. I'd love to hear how you kind of started thinking about introversion as a topic to make sense of. So I did a graduate program in higher education in what's called college student affairs. So essentially it is a master's program preparing you to work specifically with college students. And in that program, we did a whole semester on student development theory. So educational theory, um, adult uh, learning theory and some personality theory to help you understand the students you'd be working with and how to best approach them. And we did a unit or a lesson, I guess, on Myers-Briggs. And that's one that that's a metric and that's a inventory that a lot of people are fairly familiar with. Right. And I mean, it all made sense to me and I liked learning about it, but I felt like the part that stuck out to me most was the introversion extroversion piece. So I started digging into that a little bit more. Um, actually with a friend of mine who is an extrovert and I identify as an introvert. So we did it together and started looking at how he approached students versus how I approached students, how we dealt with students that were different than us. And it was a really good, interesting research project that led me to some of the first kind of presenting and speaking and facilitating that I had been doing. And that was in 2011. 
Quiet came out in 2012. So by that point, I had a couple colleagues that knew that I'd been doing that. And they said, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. And when I did, it did the same thing for me, Paul. It opened up so much more than what that initial unit had brought up. So as I started to look at that and think about the career that I was just getting started at that point and how I was interacting with other professionals around me and other students, I realized that there are a lot of pieces of the type of education I was doing that weren't particularly introvert friendly, so to speak. So I started to look more at how can we build spaces for students? How can we build education opportunities and involvement opportunities that allow students who value that time on their own and value that time to recharge? Right. How do we build that into the things that we're doing? Because we think about the way orientation set up or the types of student leaders that we put forward or how they're always encouraging students to do as many things as possible. That's harder for introverts <laughs> for several right. reasons. So what do those opportunities look like for students who don't interact the way that we've set the default? So a lot of my writing uh, started being about that. And the more I wrote about it, the more other people wanted to know about it, the more they wanted me to explain it to their students or their colleagues or their supervisors. And that's where the speaking part started to come in. So it was being able to talk about the things that I had found and help people understand how it fit in their environment. So it kind of each built on the next. So talk to me about shyness versus introversion. So this is something I feel like I have to dispel. Well, anybody that's doing research and scholarship on introversion has to dispel often. Introversion and shyness are not the same. Introversion is, a lot of ways, a physiological and neurological setup within the brain where you respond to stimuli differently. Shyness is a little bit more of a social orientation. So you are afraid of certain types of social interactions or there's a lot of anxiety and discomfort around those things. The difference between the two that I like to explain to people is that shyness, through practice and force of experience, tends to eventually be overcome once you figure out the root of it and start to um, work to uncover why some of those fears exist and eventually get over them. Exposure therapy and things like that, documented examples of how that could work. Introversion doesn't really change very much. Um, I work with a good number of people who ask me a lot if you become more introverted over time. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think that as you get older, there are things that you may have felt like you had to do that you don't feel like you have to do anymore. Right. So when I was 19, if someone was saying, hey, do you want to go to this party? And I didn't want to go, I would just go. Right. Twelve years later, if someone's like, hey, do you want to go to the thing? I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't. And that's not me becoming more introverted. That's me understanding what works for me and saying no to things that don't necessarily fit. Yeah, that uh, that definitely resonates. So what what advice do you give to people that think of themselves as introverts and may be trying to fit into a mold that may not make sense for them. How do they, how do they tap into that introversion to do things uh, that bring them alive? So I think it starts by paying really close attention, pay attention over the course of your day and over the types of things that you're doing, what sorts of things are taking a lot of energy out of you and what things do you do that give you a lot of energy? So if you notice that you have a certain time of week where you don't have meetings and you're able to do very productive work in that time, Try to figure out if you can build in some version of that, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes in each workday. That will give you some of the recharge that it takes to tackle some more energy draining activities and being able to build those things in and honor them and be able to start articulating them to other people. Not necessarily I can't do this, but this is more difficult for me um, and being able to offer alternative solutions to the types of things you might be being asked to do. 
there's a tremendous amount of self-awareness that's involved in that. So knowing what works for you and what doesn't, and then being able to articulate, and again, whether that's in writing or whether that's face-to-face, however you are most effective in expressing that, being able to build that into your regular workday, and then also being able to see that in other people and building it into their possible workday and work goals. Because I find that even for people who are introverted, they don't always see it in other people because we're socialized to do a lot of our work in a way that prioritizes or centralizes extroversion. Right. Yeah, I I see that over and over again in the working world. I mean, you have companies are trying to embrace open office, right? They have this idea that collaboration has to be you're constantly in people's faces and uh often it's uh it leads to distraction and it really hampers people from doing that deep work. I know I actually had an office for the first time in one of my last jobs, and I was kind of blown away at how much more I was accomplishing. And that was also around the time I read C- Susan Cain's book, and I was like, oh, my God, I think, I, uh, I think I'm think i an introvert. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's and the difference between having a door or not having a door, which seems like a superficial right. thing, or if anything, more attributed to status than actual uh, work productivity, but it makes a difference having a door and being able to close it. Again, even if it's only for a short time, it helps so much. And being able to have that time to yourself, even if it's prior to a collaborative experience. There's actually a study that came out relatively recently that talked about how the most creative ideas in groups were coming from letting people work and generate ideas on their own before they did so in a group, which in a lot of ways kind of upends the way that we talk about brainstorming because someone will just throw out an idea and you just have to talk. But what ideas do you not get if there are people on your team that don't think well that way? If you right. give people half an hour prior to that meeting and say, here are the ideas we're going to be generating, work it, on, work on it on your own and bring those to the meeting, you would get very, very different results. Oh, I love it. So much uh, to take away there. So I'd love to shift to talking about humor. Uh, sure. You describe yourself in the first sentence of your bio as someone that is silly, and I, I love that, definitely resonate with that. Who are some of the earliest influences on you in terms of your humor? It sounds like you were you had an early start at four years old. You're claiming credit for books you didn't write. <laughs> but, uh, who are uh, who are some of the influences in terms of humor? So I'll say I identify both of my parents to be very funny people. They're funny <laughs> in very different ways. Yeah. Uh, my mom's very more of like a wry, sarcastic type of funny, and my dad's probably more of the silly type of funny that I identify myself to be. And I think I definitely have elements of both. So being in a house with other funny people, I think, um, made a huge difference. We were also a Saturday Night Live family from where I was really young, like younger than probably most kids were. So I would be up and watch it with my parents on Saturdays, probably from when I was like eight or nine. And that was around, um, so the mid-90s Saturday Night Live cast was like Will Ferrell, Tim Meadows, that was right coming off of, or in between, like Chris Farley and David Spade and Adam Sandler. So like that era of Saturday Night Live comedy was uh, some of the first stuff that I remember wanting to make time for every week. Um, And then that kind of continued all through middle school, all through high school, um, all the movies that came from those things. And then like finding other comedians along the way, the internet helped as you might imagine. And then in college, um, a lot of colleges bring in a lot of comedians uh, to perform for students. A lot of comedians build their followings that way. 
So I had a lot of exposure to people that were kind of on their way up. So I would see them on campus and then two or three years later, you would see them on TV or you would see them on like in TV casts or doing specials. So that evolution was really interesting to watch as well. So you give a TED talk about how anxiety almost led to you discovering that humor was really important to you. Could you share a little bit about how you came to that realization? Yeah, I found that, and I don't know that I made the direct connection until a friend of mine who also actually does more speaking and more writing around anxiety and depression and panic attacks had mentioned that she could not do both at once. So you can't laugh through a panic attack or if something is making you anxious and then something makes you laugh, one stops and the other picks up. So once I realized that and once she said that, it opened up so much. So shout out to Lisa Jacob, who is the author of Not Just Me, which is a book about anxiety, depression and panic attacks. Um, And also the author of You Look Like That Girl, because she is a former actress and gets recognized for that frequently. But she is a brilliant person who... I don't know that she realizes, but saying that broke open a lot of things for me. One thing I wanted to pull out from that, which kind of blew me away, is the fact that you write that babies laugh 15 times more than adults. Why mm-hmm. Why do we struggle to laugh so much as adults? I don't know. <laughs> That's legitimately a hard question for me because I think yeah. that I find a lot of things funny. I can find a lot of things funny that most people don't find humor in. Um, and I feel like you have to, because right. otherwise the world would be a very scary, very unpleasant place. So I think being able to find humor where you can is a huge part of being able to live a life that you can enjoy. We're here for a short time where you can make it a good time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that we're at a point in history and have been for probably longer than most people recognize where there's a lot of stuff that's happening that isn't very funny. So right. if that's the case... Why not take those things that you can enjoy and that do make you feel good and give those things as at maybe not as much space in your life, but as much space as they can reasonably take up. Give yourself that. I feel like it's a good gift to uh, to give to yourself. You you also offer a two step approach and you can correct me if there are more steps. But you say step one is just identifying who are the people around you that make mm-hmm. you laugh. And then step two is like when you're when you stop laughing Something's happening. You need to assess and figure out what's happening there. Um, would love to talk about how, how you incorporated that in your life and uh, how you think about it today. So I would say the first piece about finding people, maybe not necessarily that share a sense of humor, but can make you laugh and you can make each other laugh. Um, I was actually thinking about the example that I used in that TED Talk this morning because I said something to myself while I was making breakfast that reminded me of it. And, of course, I then started laughing. Um <laughs> But yeah, just being able to find those people, because I think as much as and again, this in some cases connects to the introversion piece where people kind of assume that means, oh, you don't like people. The people that I choose to surround myself with are some of my favorite people in the world, and I could spend ages with them. Um, And being able to find those people that give you energy and part of that is being able to make you laugh. That's a huge part of thriving and introversion is figuring out what gives you energy and that can be the right people. Um, so being able to find who they are, um, sharing those moments where you can, I think that makes a huge difference. And then also, yeah, being able to notice when things aren't necessarily funny anymore, what around you has changed. Um, what do you know now that you didn't know before? 
Um, I think that that can be particularly informative when we think about jokes that are offensive or jokes that could possibly make people uncomfortable. Sometimes you don't have the information to know that for some people, some things aren't funny until later on. Um, I've gone back and watched older comedy specials from the 70s and 80s that now, no, they would never <laughs> yeah. be able to. And at the same, and it's one of those things where you can kind of hold both, right? Where you can understand why the joke was funny at the time, but also fully understand where right. the humor doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Like, what do we know now that we didn't know at the time? Um, so yeah, it, and it all evolves like that. And I know right. there are a lot of comedians that are struggling with that, but there are also some that are doing incredible things despite what others might call limitations. It's not really a limitation to them. They just see it as a challenge to write better material that connects with people in different ways. And we have so many people that are succeeding at that. It's an interesting time for humor. I think, like you said, you look back and just think, okay, this is not funny, but humor is just like language in that it's evolving. Yes. And uh, <laughs> even the comedians need to evolve and up their game and figure out how to adapt to the uh, new environment. And it's uh, great to see the people who are on the cutting edge of that. Who's uh, So who's inspiring you right now comedy-wise? Oh, see, now this gets tough because I have friends that are comedians. <laughs> and if I pick some and not others, then people get mad. Um, let me think. So I'll give an example. So this past July, Netflix came out with a series of half hour specials, which was different from the hour specials or hours and a half right. specials that they were doing weekly. So I think it was July 4th. They came out with six. And of those comedians, five I had seen previously. Yes, five I had seen previously, and I feel like those six just across the board are great examples of some really interesting, funny stuff that's happening. So let me see if I can go in order. I'll do my best. Uh, Nate Bargatze, who is out of Tennessee, he's hilarious and really, for the most part, clean, and you don't even really notice until he's finished and someone identifies it as such, but just right. his delivery and the types of stories he's telling are amazing. Um, Nikki Glaser, Dion Cole, who does a lot of acting as well. I don't know when he sleeps. He's doing a bunch of things, but his stand-up's also very funny. Um, Fortune Feimster, Dan Soder, who I've gotten to know over the last couple years, and is just very smart, very sharp, um, really, really funny, but in a lot of just anecdotal storytelling-type ways. And there's a sixth person. Who am I forgetting? Beth Stelling. Beth Stelling um, has been opening for Sarah Silverman for the past couple yeah. years. She's done some writing for Crashing on HBO, and she is incredibly funny. Just a lot of really smart observational humor. Um, big, big fan of hers. But those six, I think, just awesome. even as an example, and you get half-hour specials from Netflix all in one day, which is a gift. And this summer, they're going to be doing 15-minute specials, which is another kind of... wow even shorter convention. But I mean, that's this, like if you were to go to yeah. a set or like a, a comedy show, like that's about right. the yeah, size yeah. of uh, those sets. And there are a lot of great comedians in that too. Tim Dillon, Mateo Lane, Emma Wellman, um, a lot of really talented people that are going to give you a packed 15 minutes, but it's going to be so funny. So, so when did, uh, you decide to start doing stand up yourself and uh when is your Netflix special coming out? <laughs> they got a lot of money to throw around. Hopefully you can get a piece of that. I mean, I feel like they're gonna have to throw so much before they get to me. But so about three years ago, I took sketch writing because I again it was one of those things where I really liked the writing and wanted to be challenged by a type of writing I'd never done before. And being a sketch comedy fan for so long it just felt like a cool challenge. Um I liked it a lot. It's a challenging form to continue with after you're done with it if you're not 
doing it for a TV show or doing it for a web series. Um, the kind of like workshoppy feedback that we got in class, it's hard to get when you're just doing it on your own. Right. Um, stand up by comparison is far easy to get, far easier to get that feedback. You just go up to a mic and people either laugh or they don't. Um, yeah, occasionally there, <laughs> yeah. And, you, and that'll tell you as much as a laugh will sometimes more. So I had talked a little bit about exploring it and then, Frankly, some of it was coercion from my fellow podcast hosts. So I co-host a podcast and uh, the three other women that I was in with that, that was something they challenged me with for that year. So I ended up taking a class for it this past summer and then decided to keep going with it because I liked the writing piece of it um, and learning to like the performance piece as much. Uh, but it's just a cool opportunity to write things and then just get, again, very immediate feedback as to if it works or if it doesn't work. And it's funny, I, the two things I probably spend my time doing most are talking to people, talking to audiences, and writing. And it is the hardest version of both of those things I have ever done. Um, yeah. So it just continues to challenge me. And I think for as long as it's fun and that it's challenging, I'll keep doing it. And if Netflix can get to me while I'm still in that window, <laughs> then they may have me. If they let me awesome. do my stand-up on a plane, that's kind of the <laughs> take that I want to do on it. Ideally a Southwest flight, because that's where I spend my most, most of my time. But oh, they, uh, the flight attendants are so funny. I love I love the Southwest uh, voiceovers. So I love that. I love that they give people kind of the freedom to do it. And I always get and I don't think it's selfish, but I always get like especially excited when a woman does it yeah. um, because I'm like, they're taking a chance. Right. <laughs> In a way right. that it's not always a chance when men do it. So I get so excited when there's a woman that does the jokes. So I'm like, yes, good for her. It's fun. I think uh, I've read it quite a bit about uh, Southwest, and they're an interesting company. I, when you get hired there, I think there's a day when you join where you have to like tell a funny story. It's like mm-hmm. the first thing you have to do to like a large group of people, and it uh, it definitely just starts off. You start at the company, and you are able to be yourself and kind of make a fool of yourself and uh, be normal. So I thought I think it's a really cool company. Well, and I think it's an instructive thing to be able to do. Um, like I have a session that I work on with students or sometimes staff members or people that are getting ready to go network where I tell them to tell a story about something that made them laugh. They don't have to tell a funny story. They just yeah, have to be able good. to explain like it that. in a way that doesn't end with you had to be there. Right. And the reason that I have them do that is because telling a story about something like that or even telling a joke is very sensitive to the amount of information that you put in it. Too little, and people don't understand where the joke is, too much, and you kind of get lost in the detail, and you can't find that unexpected piece. So being able to tell our own stories when we're networking, when we're selling ourselves to people, when we're getting to know people, is very similar. How do you kind of get to the point with the important things that they need to know, especially in the case of pitching yourself or networking, in a way that people can assess who you are and have the information to know you well enough to be able to make a decision, but also have enough curiosity to be able to keep asking questions. Yeah, I, I love that question. I uh, I kind of cringe when people, somebody says, oh, I'm funny, and they say, tell me a joke. It's almost, oh, the, it's almost mm. the wrong framing of how you want to do it. I love the idea of saying, tell me a time um, or a humorous experience you went through. You know, it's funny because I was thinking about that the other day, and I was thinking there are very few things that you do where that's the automatic reaction. And Mm -hmm. then I realized I'm actually 
part of more than one of those because I was a gymnast for a long time and then I coached gymnastics. And if you tell someone you're a gymnast, <laughs> nine and a half times out of 10, they'll say, do a flip. And it's the same kind of a thing, right? right? Where so, like it's one of the very few professions that, or pursuits or hobbies that you can do that for some reason immediately demands proof. And I don't understand why that is. Yeah, that is weird. It's not like uh, you say you're a writer and somebody says, great, go write me a blog post. Yeah, or like, I'm an accountant. <laughs> Do some math. Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm going to say that to the next accountant I meet. I, I, uh, I, I would love to hear how that goes. I really would. <laughs> awesome. So you also touch on creativity, and you get bothered by the phrase same for me when people say, Oh, I'm not creative. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the practical things people can do to make themselves realize that they are in fact creative? I think widening the scope of what they deem as creative. Yeah. Because I think that we've conflated creativity with a couple different things that aren't, not to say that they aren't creative, but they aren't the only ways of being creative. The most common one is artistry or artistic ability. So people will say, oh, well, I'm not as good a writer as this person, so I'm not creative. Or I can't draw a straight line. I hear that one a lot. Um, and to me, I think that underestimates what creativity could be. So I think about my friends who like to cook or people who can coordinate outfits or right. people who really enjoy like buying new glasses and making sure that they kind of fit into a collection that's got a lot of different options. How is that any different? That's being able to put together something for yourself that might be different from things that you've seen or might be inspired by things that you've seen or might be putting together a couple different things that make you feel happy and make you feel interested and turn it into something that feels uniquely you. Those are right. all creative acts. It all counts. Um, so some of those things I would say is expand the scope of what you consider to be creative. Um, another one would be learning a little bit more about what happens outside your general domain of expertise or standard interest. So a lot of the reading that I used to do was specifically in the field of education because that's where I was working. But then I started expanding into a lot more fiction reading, a lot more reading about the business realm, a lot of more um, like organizational psychology and industrial type things. And I started being able to put together things that were informed by more than just one thing. Right. And that process of generating new products from the opinions and the knowledge and interest of more than one place, that's a creative process. You're generating something new with kind of remnants from several different places. And I think some of that you kind of have to go outside your comfort zone or standard industry to find. I love it. Uh, would love to ask you about, so you're a freelancer now, you do a bunch of different things. We've talked about a lot of the things you do, but w when did you first start thinking about, okay, maybe I'm going to follow my own path or go out on my own? So a little bit over three years ago. So this was, I think, September, October of 2015. Um, I was still working on a campus full-time, and I was also doing a lot of traveling for conferences or occasionally going to campuses of friends and colleagues that I had that worked other places because there was something I was working on that their students could have benefited from and they wanted them to hear it from me. So all of that was happening at the same time. 
And there were some elements of the job that I'd been doing day to day that I just wasn't really into doing anymore. Um, either I didn't like the way that the campus was going with it and didn't have a whole lot of agency in doing it differently, or there were just things that I was just like, I don't want this to be part of my everyday anymore. Um, so I was starting to think, think about doing something different. That was kind of already, that seed had been planted. And then there was one month, which I guess was like October, November of that year, where I was gone and working more than I was on campus and working. And I was fine with that. And I liked it. Um, it made some of my on-campus stuff a little bit more difficult. Everything still got done, but it ended up being more difficult to try to integrate both than to consider trying to just do one. So I thought about it from like a financial perspective and in terms of how I like to work. And again, going back to that feeling for introversion, what was giving me energy and what was wearing me out and thinking about if I push myself a little bit harder, those travel pieces could be the only thing that I did and had kind of been working towards that for a while. Um, ended up making that decision concrete that December and then January 2016 was when I started doing traveling and speaking and writing as the main sources of income full time. So at this point, a little bit over three years ago. Yeah. And how, how did it first feel when you were, when you finally took that leap and you were uh, operating out on your own? Ooh, there are probably a couple different feelings in there. I think it was liberating in some ways. It was terrifying in other ways. Right. I mean, today it's still, I still feel a combination of both of those things often. Um, but per, those are probably the two most prominent. Like I had the opportunity to do things that I really liked and speak about things where I felt very, very knowledgeable and very, very helpful. Um, that's not the case for everything that you do in a quote unquote traditional job. Like some things you feel like you're really good at and other things you feel like you're flailing or that you're actively not good at. And I think now I get to do more things that I enjoy and excel at than I did before. I love it. What advice would you give to students? I know you do a lot with students, but what advice are you giving them or would you give them about preparing themselves for the opportunities we have and how we work and how we um, exist out there in the world today? I think one of the biggest things that I want to continue to impart to people is that, yes, once you leave school, Assuming you're not going into either some form of service or a graduate program or research or things like that, you get to choose how you go into a workspace and what kinds of assets you give them. So as you're going into looking at companies and as you're going into looking at possible job opportunities, and again, that can and should for a lot of people include the possibility of working for yourself, thinking about not just what those organizations have to give you, but what you have to give them. It is a two way street. A lot of them don't know to see it that way until it's either too late or um, they've had the opportunity to talk to somebody who shares that. Um, so yeah, a company can want you and think that you're a good person for their, uh, their organization, but is that also something that you want? You're allowed to ask those questions. Um, and if the answers aren't necessarily ones that make the most sense for you, you are allowed to turn those things down. It's a hard position to be in because college is expensive and wanting to recoup that investment and make decisions right. that are cognizant of that. I fully understand that. Um, but I also recognize the idea of needing to live the kind of life that you can thrive in and being able to fight against the having to fight against those things can cause its own problems. So how can you do your best to kind of honor who you are as a person and what you want, as well as making those responsible decisions? 
it's all allowed to count in that process. So you're a big reader. Did you, first question, did you really read 76 books last year? Yeah, I did. <laughs> so I, th- I think there's one on there. Anything that's in italics is something that I quit before finishing. And I believe that no, there's one fair. book on there that is the case. So I saw your reading list on your site and we'll definitely link up to that. And it was saying, all right, I was going to ask her like one or two books that influenced her, but there's probably 50 to a hundred. Oh. Um, do you have two or three things you've read that have really shifted your mind or um, just excite you? Of the past year or overall? Yeah. I mean, we can, we can do past six months if you want. Past six months. Okay. So I finished a book two days ago. Um, and every year this happens where there's a book that I read within the first month that I know for a fact will be like the either the, the book of that particular. Yeah, it will hit the best of the year list. No question. And I think I might have read the best one already, which is nuts because it's barely February. Um, but it is by Patrice Kahn Cullers, who is one of the three women who founded the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's called When They Call You a Terrorist. It is incredible. Um, it weaves the foundations of the movement. And all of the events that led to it and all of the work that the three women who were founders who were actually doing it via Facebook and text messages and phone from around the country and managed to build a movement that now spans the country as well as parts of Canada and the UK and managed to do it that way in about three years. Um, wow, yeah. And she weaves that through along with her own history growing up. So why do these issues matter to her? How did they affect her family and the people around her? When it came time to build a movement, what personal experiences were informing the fervor by which she was attacking it? It is a wonderful, wonderful read. Um, and I actually did <clears throat> I did the audiobook, which I'm just now starting to get back into because I was awful at being read to when I was younger. So I'm trying to... Uh, trying to flex that skill and the patience that it takes to do that. But this one was very, very much worth it. So that's one. When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Kahn Cullers. Um, an offbeat choice, the companion book to Hamilton. So Hamilton, The Revolution, which was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, as well as, oh goodness, Jeremy McCarter, I think is the co-author's name. And it basically tells the story of how Hamilton was written and the process of pulling together the Broadway production. It's got all the lyrics to all of the songs, but it's also oh, cool. a really interesting leadership read, which oh, I wow. think is great because it talks a lot about, um, I think that a lot of the praise for Hamilton, rightfully so, to be abundantly clear, yeah. falls on Lin-Manuel Miranda, but he is very generous in giving and giving credit to everybody that helped him write the songs and helped put together the staging, the actors of that founding group who kind of helped refine the songs as they were coming and define what the play ultimately ended up being. So it's acknowledging the part that he had in it while also being humble enough and um, vulnerable enough, but also just frank enough to say this wasn't just me. And here is ample space to talk about everybody that had a part in this. Um, so I, it's been one of my favorite reads just to learn about something that I really enjoy, but also just looking at how somebody in a position of leadership who could have taken all the credit and walked away with it gave so much space right. and so much appreciation and so much acknowledgement to the people who helped him build it. Yeah, I love the power of that. So we'll definitely uh, link up to those, and I can link up to your uh, hundreds of books you've read as well. There's a best reads list for this year and last year, if that helps. Those are ranked in order? 
they're not in an order. It's really more of just, okay. I think I picked 12, 10, 10 the first time and 12 the second oh. time of ones that was just like, hey, these are the, the best of this particular year. Fantastic. And how are you, how are you defining success these days? Ooh. Um, for me, I would say success is the ability to do stuff that I really like with people that I have a lot of fun with and who know a lot of cool things, ideally things that I don't know. Um, and then also being able to have fun. So having enough money to have a roof over my head, have insurance and also have a little bit of fun. That's really all that I need. I love it. And where can people find you if they want to learn more? So my website is my name, amamarfo.com, A-M-M-A-M-A-R-F-O. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, uh, at amamarfo. I'm also on LinkedIn. And where else am I? The Imposters Podcast. So that is a podcast with myself and three other friends of mine. So it's three writers and a painter. And we talk about topics of creativity. And we are at imposterspod.com. We're also on iTunes and Google Play. Awesome. Link up to those. It was great talking to you today. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This has been an incredibly fun experiment for me, and I'm loving talking to such incredible guests. I've received some awesome feedback, and I appreciate all the suggestions and just the praise. I'm kind of blown away. Uh, It's just so amazing to have such positive support. I hate asking for further support, but would love if you could share or recommend the podcast to one friend. If you are inclined to support more, I've actually set up a Patreon page, which I am experimenting with and potentially going to release some exclusive content and with the goal of building a community of people who are passionate of making sense of the future of work and enabling people to do work that matters to them. To learn more, you can check that out at bondlesspod.com. Again, thanks for the support. And if you have ideas, questions you want me to answer on a future Q&A podcast or just suggestions, would love to hear them all. Please email me at paul at think-boundless.com. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com slash membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.